Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Hey, welcome everyone. Welcome to the third segment of our Emory Marketing Analytics podcast series, jointly well brought to you and sort of combined effort with the Fanalytics podcast. In today's episode. We've got a good one because we've got we've got a gentleman on named Bill Fagan. Bill is the CEO of the Aspire Group. What's interesting about Bill is that Bill has a really kind of nice broad perspective because what the Aspire Group does is that they 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 do a lot of the marketing for a lot of pro and college teams, a lot of the relationship management. So Bill gets to have He's one of these guys that gets to have really a 30,000-foot uh, view of what is going on with the consumer and what is going on with the fan. So without further ado, the conversation with Bill Fagan. Bill has maybe one of the best bios I've ever seen. There, there are certain elements to Bill's bio that I just love. So Bill is currently the CEO of the Aspire Group. Now, I'm not going to go into too much of what the Aspire Group does because I think that's going to be part of Bill's story. But what I love about Bill climbing to be the CEO is that Bill was also the organization's first employee, right? Bill's background is very much in sports. And, and look, he's got some truly great titles, my favorite of which, I almost want to make Bill guess this, what my favorite award that he's received. But Bill was a start was a sales manager with the Charlotte Bobcats and was named the NBA rookie of the year in sales. Um he's also been a Poets and Quants which is this website that tracks the NBA industry best and brightest. I know he's been part of the Sports Business Journal 40 under 40. So Bill has lived in the world of sports and really kind of accumulated honors and moved up the ranks every year. Now, why I'm so thrilled to have Bill join us is, you know, the way I look at marketing is that it's marketing is fundamentally about creating and capturing passion. And so, and I, look, I love the laboratory of sports, and I think Bill has a real unique perspective on consumers and, and the passion that comes along with sports. Based on his position at the Aspire Group, 
And so, you know, I'm absolutely thrilled to have Bill join us today. So welcome, Bill Fagan. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Always great to visit. And I I enjoy our conversations because uh, we come from different perspectives, but uh, have uh, have a shared interest, which is uh, identifying who is a fan, what what forms a fan, and uh, in our world, you know, how do we engage with those those fans or future fans? Okay, just to get things started, how did you how did you go from and, and you know please explain a little bit the you know where the, the Aspire Group is positioned so folks have a, a sense of sort of the the scope of how you view this world. Um, so, you know, how did you get here in really just, you know, about a decade from the first employee to the CEO? Sure. I, you know, my early parts of my uh, work life, I started with internships and undergrad at the University of Miami. I was a business student and specifically a marketing major. So I just anticipated I'd be working in marketing, whatever that means. And then uh, had a careers and sports related class. Or there were guest speakers, and and that got me introduced to the whole concept of sport marketing and everything that happens on the business side. And so, after a couple of internships with the Dolphins and Orange Bowl committee, um, I found myself in Phoenix with the Phoenix Suns NBA team and started in inside sales, which was ticket sales, making phone calls to uh, I, to build and sell ticket packages and other ticket-related packages for the NBA team. And then they also had a WNBA team and an indoor um, arena football league team, and then later a, a an ECHL hockey team. And so had the opportunity to sell across multiple sport codes and at the same time had a, an amazing training ground where they really focused on and emphasized training and development of us as, as professionals. and had success doing that. And after three, four years doing that, um, yeah, I would, when I would meet with my mentors and my direct supervisors, they would say, what do you want to do? Where do, where do you want to go? And I would say, you know, I don't know. I really don't know. And I, you know, I grew up, I love baseball. I grew up in New England, Red Sox fan. And so when push came to shove, I felt like I had to give an answer. So I said, I want to work in Major League Baseball and I want to move closer to home. And the best thing that ever happened is that's never happened. I've never worked at <laughs> and never moved back close to Connecticut. Instead, uh, what, what, what I learned is that what I was really interested in is helping teach others and lead others. And that was more the management track. And so that led me to Canada. I went to Moncton, New Brunswick, which is another time zone east of where we are. Okay. I, I, I love where you're going with this, Bill. I, I love the, the phrase, that led me to Canada. <laughs> I'd never stepped foot in the country. Uh, so it was, it was a leap of faith, but I knew who I was going to be working for. And it was a, a learning opportunity for me. And so uh, I learned pretty quickly that I don't know any more French today than I did then, uh, which is zero. And so I hired a, a bilingual sales and service person and they could you know, be my partner in crime to help service the fan base, which was French first uh, community. And so all that being said is those management, those early years of management training uh, were very formative for me. And so when I was in Charlotte, after my time in Canada, I'd been managing a team of uh, 10 to 12 
salespeople selling tickets for the NBA team there. And I got, got a call from Bernie Mullen, founder and chairman of the Aspire Group. And Bernie's background, uh, he was formerly senior VP of business for the NBA and WNBA and G League and oversaw the entire marketing of the entire, all of those leagues, as well as then moving to Atlanta to be the CEO of the Atlanta Hawks, Thrashers, and Phillips Arena for four years. And so he was tired of working for seven different owners and getting seven different messages and said, uh, you know what, I'm going to go start, my, lay my own shingle and uh, start my own firm and be a consultant. So we started actually as an independent consultancy with the Aspire Group with Bernie and, and Bill Duffy as his partner, who was the CFO at the Atlanta Hawks. So the two of them just decided they're going to go into consulting, help teach others how to fish. And after about a year of that, George Tech called. George Tech said, we are seeing flat attendance in football and basketball. We're not getting any new fans. Our fans are, are getting older and we need help. And they said, great, uh, we're happy to help and put together a consulting proposal to teach them how to sell and market better. And they said, no, no, you don't understand. Our job is to educate <laughs> students. And then and within athletics, we want to make, make them as successful as possible as athletes, but we're not marketers. We're not salespeople. Why don't we outsource this to you? You're, you're the experts in this and let us do what we're really good at. And so at the time, Dan Radakovich, the athletic director, who's now at Clemson, really gets the credit for the idea of outsourcing this piece of business, this ticket-related business, which is the servicing of their own fans and the selling and identifying future fans and doing it with a dedicated staff, which is what I'd been doing my whole career. So I was brought on to build that first, we call them fan relationship management centers, and then hire the staff and build all the systems that would be replicatable, almost like a franchise model that could then go be repeated across other sport properties over time. And so that's where we've been. We started as a consultancy. Strategy is, is still core to what we do, more of the consulting side. Um, and then we, we, we're doing more and more in data insights and use, understanding how we use data. That's our second pillar. Our third pillar is marketing. But when we talk about marketing, we're talking about one-to-one marketing and digital marketing messages, SMS, text, um, email, et cetera. And then relationships, which encompasses both the fan relationship, but then also the corporate relationship. So we're doing some work in sponsorship and corporate sales. And then finally, training, training and development of our own staff, as well as training and development of external staff. And underneath all of that support system is what we call performance analytics. And this being a conversation that's related to analytics, what we're really saying is we have a scorecard for everything we do. So we measure everything in each one of those buckets and say, how did it perform? And if it's not performing well, is there something that we can control to help improve the performance? If it's something's doing well, then we want to replicate that and create future best practices or what we refer to as next practices. That's where we spend our time. Okay, Bill, there's a lot there. I, I, I wrote down several key words and I'm a little bit not entirely sure on how to sort of break this down, how to proceed. But one of the things that 
definitely I, I heard in, in that story, and this is probably almost more on a personal level. Inside sales, cold calling people to buy tickets. Mm. It's got to be a really interesting thing to do. I'm guessing I'm guessing you take some hits, you know, personal hits in terms of, you know, we're not, a lot of people aren't used to having the, the phone hung up on them a hundred times a day. But I'm also guessing you learned a lot about consumers and fans from having these conversations. And so can you talk a little bit more about that? And, and, and look, this is, this, we are the marketing analytics center. And so my view of analytics, and I think yours too, from how you described that, is very holistic. You know, there's data, there's, it, you know, statistical insights, but there's also the soft side, the psychological side. And so what did you learn about fan psychology from getting hung up on a lot? These days, we, we, we call it high tech with high touch. What we mean is using the best of technology, but technology alone is not going to fully serve a fan. And so the high touch is the personal relationship that we establish with that season ticket holder or with that single game buyer or somebody that's not never having attended. So that's the one one to one conversation. And you're right. You know, in those days, our technology was minimal. We had a phone and a computer that was connected to the Internet. We were taking notes and Excel spreadsheets and just doing the best we could. And it was a numbers game. Much of that still exists today. But with the advances of technology and some automation and things like click to chat where you can talk to a live representative or not everyone wants to have a phone conversation, they prefer to have a text message. So whatever that form of communication is, at the end of the day, nothing can replace the one-to-one relationship. So one of the most fun parts of the day when I was on the front lines talking to fans every day was the different types of conversations. They're talking to somebody who had been out to their first game and asking them how what's your connection to the sports property how did you what what brought you out that first time understanding what that motivation was or what that trigger was talk to a group ticket buyer who came not because they're a fan of the sports property but because they're they're a member of the boy scouts or they're a member of the youth their, their son or daughter is a member of the youth sports league that had a group outing to the game and once they get out there, we want to make sure their experience is phenomenal, which is what we can control off the court, off the field, and then build that relationship and try to repeat that. Because going from in, in the NBA, where you've got 44 home basketball games, or in Major League Baseball, 82 home games, you know, that's a big commitment. That's, to go from zero to, to a full season ticket, that's a big leap. We don't expect the average person to do that. But if we can, for somebody to go from, one to two, that's a reasonable step. Or from two to three, or three to four. And so we as the marketers on the front lines, it's our job to move them up the escalator by listening to them and helping make a strong recommendation based on what they told us, meaning what their motivation and what drove them to come out the first time. And then introduce them to the right ticket plan or the right package that speaks to what their interests are based on the price point that they're interested in, based on where they like to watch the event from, what experiences they enjoy off the court or off the field. If they have children, maybe it's being near the fan zone or the kids zone. Maybe they want to know where the mascot is in the game. All of those little things that we can control off 
off the ice or off the court. Um, that's what we're looking to understand. And what, what we do as sales and service professionals is take notes, you know, learn, 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 put that in a system like a CRM system, and then use that information for future conversations to better serve them. Well, and that just screams that, that this is like very consistent with a lot of where marketing is going. I mean, just just that description is very suggestive of using, uh, you know, AI or machine learning techniques, natural language processing to somehow take those notes and convert it into something, right? To, to some body of knowledge. Uh, it, I, I can't help but ask the question, though, because, you know, I, I think there's always this this balance between the analytical and the and the human. So part of, I mean, you can take all the notes in the world, but, you know, if Bill Fagan has talked to me about my attendance at three or four or six or seven games, you know more than is in that, those notes. And so that relationship is also partly owned by the, the salesperson, right? Okay. Well, well said. I mean, and that's, that's the secret sauce because in our, and it speaks to, the importance of staffing and the retention of quality staff because they, they have that relationship. I have a brother that works in financial planning. He's in a relationship business and he talks about it all the time. He says, the best place to find my next customer is talking to my existing customers and increase their wallet share, increase their investments. And it's no different in our in sports business. Now, the biggest risk for the company or for the firm is that if I leave, I'm not just losing that they some of that relationship or all of that personal relationship is gone. And it doesn't matter who picks up the notes in the CRM field. There's there's an intangible value that I have. And that I may know that you know, that account has a birthday coming up or that they have um, that, that they really like uh, popcorn and you know I would stop by their seats at the at halftime and and if they didn't have popcorn I'd bring them a voucher for popcorn because I knew that made a difference in their in their experience those little things may or may not neatly fit in the systems that in technology products that we have available and so I think that is the challenge but that's also the opportunity it speaks to not replacing all of the people with technology but this balance and this blend and then for us that are in leadership, and we've hired over 1,200 people, full-time people in Aspire's 12 and a half years, that we've, and a lot of those staff, of course, have gone on because we, and they've, many of them are still working in the industry, but they're not with us. Mm-hmm. So the challenge is how do you retain the relationship, even if with the fan, even as staff has, has turnover over, over the course of time. And so um, truly important. And uh, we're really proud of the fact that we've been able to retain many of our leaders. So if countless people have been with us for 8, 10, 12 years in leadership positions, and that really helps kind of keep the culture of sustainability, which in turn helps us hire great leaders and then staff to support. Okay, I want to I ask you another question. One of the things that really popped out to me is you're talking about the evolution of the Aspire group in terms of how you started was as a marketing person, what Georgia Tech did is actually kind of frightening. 
right? Because in, in some ways they were saying, hey, we, you know, our, and look, they got to know it, right? That their sports is a brand, Georgia Tech sports, um, that they want to outsource a lot of that to you. Most marketers do not want to outsource any control over their brand, over their relationships whatsoever. I mean, so you guys are now in the business of marketing for other people, other brands. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's it, those early years. I, I will I'll tell you, it was, we were strangers um, and and we didn't replace any jobs. You know, these were new. These were incremental jobs and that were created that we brought to serve the fans but we were representing and we continue to represent you know we've over we've represented over 100 colleges over 280 sports properties and they are entrusting us to service them and service their key accounts both ticket buyers as well as donors and in some cases their corporate relationships three very distinct types of relationships and they realize that there's value to high touch and there are limits and constraints to how much they can get out there. And there's limits to the marketing dollars that they may be able to spend to reach all of their audience. And so they, we, we, we are really an extension of their marketing arm. We're not necessarily replacing any of it. We're adding incremental one-to-one -one relationship building where they can do a lot of the traditional broad-based marketing to let let their uh, casual fans know by through billboards and digital media when the game what time the game is this Saturday but they they don't have the capacity necessarily in most cases to be able to call or market one-to-one -one all of those people and so we're just helping extend or amplify that message but in a more personal in a more personal way but what about is there coordinate I would assume there's coordination right they put up a billboard they want to know what you know what signals you're seeing from the database right there is and that's why one of the compliments we get all the time is uh, when a team president or a an athletic director gets an email from a, a fan and that says i talked to mike lewis and the sales team and he provided me such a, a superb customer service that I've decided I'm going to make an extra donation this year. I decided I'm going to bring out my business for a group outing. And that service made the difference. And so there's that. The second piece of feedback that we love hearing is that every week we'll do a dashboard recap for every property. And it shows what we call the root and the fruit. The root is all of the activity that we had in that location. And the fruit is all of the revenue or tickets we sold or donations that we collected or otherwise. And so all of that root activity is the number of calls we made, the number of minutes we were on the phone, the number of referrals we collected, all of those things that we can measure. And then we can show what the actual revenue performance was or the um, ticket sales that we've actually directly impacted. And our partners love seeing that because they can have their pulse on what's happening. But the subtext to that is what are we hearing on the phones? So that's those are the straight stats. But what are we hearing? What are the what are the most common objections? I'll give you an example. New new football coach hired at the University of Texas, University of Kansas. They have a new coach seemingly every couple of years. And so, but that is a major decision for, for an athletic director that they make. 
a coaching hire makes such you know, have such an impact on success. And so what they really wanted to know is, what do the fans really think about this hire? Are they really energized? Because I can see the numbers. What are they saying? Are they are they excited about game one? And and, and what are we hearing? Are they kind of blah? And we're able to provide that context, the contextual, well, we're hearing it and we can, we're hearing it this many times on the phone or we're he- seeing it this many times in email feedback um, or, you know, there's not much of a buzz at all. And so maybe we need to do a better job of getting the message out there, um, bringing the personality out of the coach before we even play the first game. Because at that point, the, the, the message is going to be different. It's going to be about performance and how did the team do? And we have no control of that. So what can we do around the coaching hire in this specific example to get the message out to it? It's a new day. It's a new regime. And the future is bright. You know, that you guys are almost operating in a dangerous space because you're talking to you're talking to fans. And, and the example you gave of talking to fans about a coaching hire you know, you're you're talking about an extraordinarily passionate group of fans that's highly reactive. So it, 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 there's going to be a danger, I think. You tell me between what the fans are saying in this ultra passionate environment and what the fans actually end up doing in terms of continuing to show up to the stadium. Oh, in our experience, the loudest fans, the ones that put up the biggest roars and biggest gripes are you typically your most engaged yeah and because that those are the conversations we actually like to have we like when somebody calls and said what were you thinking when you hired so-and-so or what were they thinking when they went for the fourth down went for it on fourth down from eight yards out you know they never they they can never convert that play though we love hearing that it's the ones that don't say anything and that when we look into the ticketing system, when we see that they haven't attended the last three home games and those tickets are just sitting, we would we used to say sitting in their in their desks at work, and now they're all mobile or digital tickets. So they're just not getting scanned and they're not transferring them to a friend or family member. We know that that likelihood of that person returning or renewing goes down for every game that they don't attend. So they are speaking to us by their behavior. And those are high risk accounts. And so what what can we do in season, even if the team is not helping us on, on the field, what can we do to engage them in a way that is meaningful and understand, is there a way to, to get them back and, and listen to them? Are there things that are in our control around the fan experience that, you know, we can, we can help repair, you know, sometimes there are things we can do. Somebody, if, if somebody, for example, has a uh, an issue with their chair back um, and that the, the seat is broken or the cleanliness of the restrooms, those are things that we can go to the facilities operators and say, hey, behind section 101, you know, the restrooms, there's always a long line and they seem to seemingly always out of soak. Like, so let's get extra attendance in there throughout the game. And then we can go back to that person and say, great news, we've repaired your chair, we've got the restroom. Uh, concerns alleviated and so the, the, these are there's so many elements of an experience that are out of our control we try to just take those that we can control and focus on those things and then be as responsive as we can be because that's where we can make a difference and so no we can't control what, what's going to happen with the performance but if we can control everything else 
then and if, I, if they feel like they have a relationship with me as their point of contact, then we got a chance to retain them and a chance if they have a really great experience, their likelihood to promote us at, to a friend or family member or colleague goes up because of our personal relationship. You know, I'll give you a, a little in, insight from a totally different industry that's completely consistent with what you're saying. That uh, I remember years ago doing some work with the newspaper industry, and the more people complained about not getting their paper, the more likely they were to become long, long-term customers. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's almost like the more I complain about the team, the more I threaten to cancel my season tickets, the more money you could probably charge me. It's kind of a great paradox where apathy is the is really the killer in all this. It, it's true. We talk about this. And related to pricing, which is fascinating because most sport properties say we can't increase our, our prices. Our, our fans can't take another price increase. But meanwhile, you know, the, the price of uh, cost of living and everything around us, cost of buying fuel, the cost of rent, all, everything's going up in our economy. Yet going up three, five percent in our tickets, decision makers fear for their jobs because they don't want the, the lashback of, of raising a price. Meanwhile, in some some of these cases, we're talking about really high in-demand sport properties that are highly successful or they're and they have a very passionate fan base. And maybe they're sold out in the lower level and they're not sold out in the 200 level. Well, in a, in a workshop, we can identify the different fan groups that are out there. And we're not we don't have to raise the price across the board, but if you're talking about courtside seats for basketball or some, you know mid court for basketball that we know are always going to be sold out, they could probably take a bit of a price increase. Those people aren't going anywhere, and maybe they, they'll, they'll give them a little extra donation just to keep their seat. Now, if we want to find affordable ways to get people new fans in, we want to create some fan friendly pricing or general admission pri- pricing in different areas. That can be done. So you can, it can be a win win. So the overall blended average may be flat pricing, but in high demand areas for these bands that have raised their hands, say, this is, these are generational season tickets. My great grandparents had, had tickets here. They're not going anywhere. And so we're not gouging them. We're just, we're, we're giving them the value for you know, what they're buying based on the demand for what they're asking. For the area that they're seated in and so it's understanding which fan segment that this person or this account lives in so we can better serve them and you see this around season ticket benefits and the pros started doing a really good job in this over the last decade where you know there's not a one-size-fits-all benefits package for being a season ticket holder or even a donor you know it's they, they could have a fan season ticket package. They could or super fan package. They could have a corporate uh, package. They could have um, various types based on what how people actually use their tickets when they have their tickets. And the benefits then match them. Or they can have a pick your benefits. And we give them a menu of various um, things that they can choose from, gift bags and different um, swag. And they tell us what they're most interested in. You know, Bill, that, that's great because that is, I, I think that's a subtle shift in perspective from 
let's say, a yield management perspective where you're going to maximize the value of what's sitting in the arena on any given day to more of a customer lifetime value perspective. Because a lot of what I heard in that was growing the value of the high-end customers while maybe taking a little bit of a revenue hit to invest in customer acquisition and to build relationships. Now, I know that's a tough thing in any business when you shift the time frame for evaluation from this event or this flight taking off, a lot of this is from the airline industry, to long-term building of customer equity. It, it, it's a completely different way of, of thinking. And, um, you know, most uh, athletic directors, just as an example, all they care about is what they care about in, in the, this space is the bottom line. So it's how many season tickets do we have? We have 10,000 season tickets. That's all that matters. Whereas we want to know, we, will, we want to go two and three levels down and mm-hmm. say, okay, we had 10,000 last year, but if we want to grow above 10,000, we got to renew at at least 85% or higher because we got to make up that gap. It's 15% in new sales. And even if we do that, we're just breaking even from last year. So we actually need to really, really look at the lifetime value and look at how, what are we doing to retain and service those most avid accounts so that then we can go out and we can get, do the tough job, which is get new fans and, and look internally to the database to look at who are the most likely people to actually take, take the step up, become season ticket holders and investing and servicing them accordingly. Uh, but that's, that takes time and it is a long-term approach. But if you want long-term sustainable growth, um, it, you have to invest at all levels. You can't just have a new sales strategy and ignore your, your base because mm. that base will continue to dwindle. Okay, Bill, one of my favorite marketing challenges in sports, and you alluded, it, alluded to this a little bit in your initial, and you're sort of in, talking a little bit about your career in the Aspire Group, is that you guys are engaged in a marketing function. You're trying to grow customer lifetime value. Unlike a lot of marketing environments, you have relatively little control over the part of the experience the customer most values. Mm-hmm. You're marketing without control over product quality, where product controlity is winning. How does that change the game, both in terms of what you do and in terms of how you manage relationships with the organizations and the and the corporate partners? I think it's it's depends based on whether we're talking what the sport property is. I'll give you two examples, one being college athletics, one being professional sports. So in, in college athletics, there's something very unique for the average or most typical fan. And that is that most of them actually attended that university. Whereas in pros, nobody went to that, that school <laughs> <laughs> except Maybe it's it's generational, meaning they grew up in a household where people are fans of that team. And so it's a bit more volatile um, and, and, and on the pro side. And it's oftentimes more dependent on wins and losses. At a college campus, there's there's a reason that homecoming exists. And if, they, if you have football at that school, there's a reason that they, they build it around a home football game because it's all about coming back together, that sense of community, that sense of connection. And regardless of who, you know, when, we, when we're selling tickets for homecoming games, pick sport, 
we get very few questions about who the opponent is. And the, and we get very, very little resistance on you know, what the team performance is for that particular date because they're more interested in seeing their old pals, their old roommates, and going back to the sorority fraternity house and that connection. And so there's something really that's part of the fabric of who they and their identity. And so that is something that we 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 like to say we like to turn the DVD on in their mind. Uh, or take them back to that moment in time. Many people at those college years, their best, most most fun years, where they're, they're, they're beginning their lives. And so how do we take them back? One of the ways we do that is through coming to a homecoming game or an alumni networking event it happens to be at a football game or a basketball game. I think on the, on the college and uh, the professional side, we don't have that as much. So Many times as sports properties and sport marketers, we try to build things that are similar to that. So we'll do, if it's the Atlanta Braves, there's a reason that they have Georgia Tech Day at the Atlanta Braves. And every fan that signs up for that game gets a Georgia Tech co-branded hat with the Braves logo and Georgia Tech. Now we're tapping into the specific audience, Georgia Tech alums, Georgia Tech fans that also are potentially Braves fans. So they're hoping that they get some people that are wouldn't traditionally come to a Braves game, but they're looking for a way to be connected with their institution. And that's why you see a lot more theme days, uh, bobblehead days, and all these promotional events to try to get new people that maybe wouldn't normally attend, but we give them an extra reason to attend. And all of those marketing promotions, we serve as an extra sort of megaphone to let fans know or future fans know we have we're having this special event here's what's what's happening around that event and then we're inviting you to come out and so that can be done regardless of sport property but it takes a, a really integrated uh, team approach whether you have marketing staff internally whether you we've hired a third party like us to making those um, to create help co-create those messages but ultimately we got to get the word out of what's happening and then find the audience that actually would care about it. Okay, Bill. So let's turn to current events. Okay. So fandom is a part of the culture and the culture is probably the craziest that either of us has ever experienced. Uh, technological changes, you know, people cutting the, the cable and somehow watching, look, I know the kids watch sports on YouTube somehow. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> Um, there a pandemic with you know people still wearing masks, and live events limited or constrained or less comfortable, extreme partisanship, right? I mean, we've we're now living in an era where athletes refuse to go to the White House depending on who the the president is. Um, social turmoil, you know, the the NBA season is almost in uh, at the time of we're taping this at least might be a little bit in flux. They'll, they'll play the NBA season, but, you know, maybe the New York Nets aren't the favorite because of a vaccine mandate. Mm. So crazy times and sort of big picture. I mean, what, what do you think this is doing to the sports industry? What is this doing to fandom in general? What does the world look like on the other side of this? And I know that's too much. So you can take on a piece of it or break it into parts. You know, what do you think? Yeah, it's it, it's it's been wild. Uh, we don't get consulted to figure out how to 
uh, address societal um, shifts and, and challenges. I will say though that you know we are um, oftentimes on the front lines, and uh, you know going back to when Colin Kaepernick first knelt on the sidelines during the national anthem. At the time, the NFL was one of our clients, and we were selling the NFL Pro Bowl, and so there was a there were some conversations with fans that would have historically attended the NFL Pro Bowl game, but they didn't align with that behavior. And, and, and so they refused to buy tickets. Now, how do they feel today? X number of years removed and given the societal shifts, hard to say. But what we can do in that instance is quantify it. Is that one person? Is it 100 people? Is it how, lar- how large of a segment is that? We can see the macro trends that are generally publicly available in terms of what's happening to attendance and general interest. And we can look at viewership numbers that are generally publicly available. Look at those macro trends. Where we come in is at the very front lines. What are people really saying? And are they saying it with, you know, with a lot of passion? Are they saying, you know, I just don't, I don't really, I don't follow, I don't share the same beliefs as you know, the players on the field or what the coach says. I don't, I don't agree with that. And so we're really the listening or the ears for those messages. And, you know, right now and in the college world, there's, there's even other um, dynamics, you know, name, image, and likeness and the amateurism around what is a student athlete and should they be paid? Should they be compensated for their name, image, and likeness? Well, the answer now is yes, they are going through, they have that opportunity, but what does that really look like? And how does that impact the, the game as a whole? How does it impact the future of college athletics, the future of professional sport? And everyone's got an opinion on that. And so, again, we're just listening to those things. And, you know, we, we look at all of those, all of these issues that are around us. These are sometimes positive, but they're distractions. If distractions are distracting if you're a decision maker and you're a leader in one of these organizations. And in some cases, it means you've got to spend money to address those issues. So now college athletic departments are going out and hiring third parties to consult with them on name, image, image, and likeness. They're hiring third parties to help train their student athletes on building their own brands and giving them tools to do that is that they're in control of their rights. And that they don't have anybody internally that has historically done that. And so it's a new expense. And so it, it's similarly, you know, more and more sports properties are have created, you know, a position or a department around uh, social justice or diversity, equity, and inclusion. And if they're going out and hiring that position, again, that requires resources and it's, it's new expense. And so we think a lot of these things are for the best. However, where's the money going to come from, regardless of who you are? And it, it, we go back to the sports business money tree. The trunk of the tree is ticket sales. And all those other branches of revenue streams, whether it's multimedia rights and television rights and you know food and beverage concessions, tailgating revenues, all these ancillary revenue streams, whatever, wherever we can help generate revenue in those other areas, because the expenses are only going up to run for property, regardless of what level you're competing at. And so we're the revenue generators, but we got to do it in the appropriate way that's going to make it easier for them to focus on those other things. And that's one of our core philosophies is 
we can help an AD or a team president sleep at night because they know that ticketing is taken care of or the, the corporate partners are taken care of or their donors are taken care of. That's one less thing for them to worry about and frees them up to address these other issues. Okay, would it be, would it be safe to say that the, so the ticketing represents the core fandom asset and then that generates all the extras? I, I, I want to follow up a little bit, especially on the college sense, the college environment. Because I, th- I think in some ways it's close to what happens in the pro environment with uh, sponsorships, et cetera. But how do you go from sports fandom to writing a check that's going to support the library? Uh, so good question. So the pandemic has is, is created a bit of a silver lining in our industry. For our lifetimes, um, the whole concept of a getting a refund on tickets, it was a hard no. In fact, it was always printed on the back of every ticket to any, any live event ever, concert, anything, sporting event, no refunds, no, no exchanges. Well, something happened called COVID-19 and events were canceled left and right. It was, it, and so sports properties pretty much across the board had to, uh, if they wanted to maintain a relationship, in the toughest of times with their most avid supporters, they gave them an option for refunds. Now, in the most extreme examples, we had some sport properties that just refunded everybody, no questions asked. And, but what most people did is they gave options. They said, we need you now more than ever, but we'll carry or we'll do a credit. We'll roll over your tickets, ticket purchase to the, whenever we return. So to next season, knock on wood, we hope. So they'll roll over and keep your seats, keep the money on the account. Some fans didn't love that. And they said, no, I, I, I really need a refund. I've lost my job. And we understand that. In those instances, we would process the refund. In some instances, if they kept their money on the account, we wanted to say thank you. So we gave them an extra credit, whether it's towards food and beverage, merchandise, or just credit towards future tickets on their account. It could be 5 10 15%. The other thing that was unique in college is we offered those fans to convert those ticket dollars to donations and to fund the student athlete scholarship funds. And so if they were spending $500 on their season tickets, we would say, if you convert that over to the scholarship fund, you get scholarship fund donor benefits. And by the way, we'll make sure that you can also repurchase your tickets whenever we return to the stands. And so those those new donors were most, those donors were mostly new. And this has been a major challenge for college athletic programs, which is how do we create future donors? Because recent college grads, generally speaking, don't make a donation to the athletic department or to the school of business or the school of education or wherever. It happens later in life. And they may get that general call asking for a donation, Typically, they're not doing it so much later in their careers when they have wealth and they've accumulated wealth. Now, what happened if those same those same season ticket holders have now converted to a donation and we've given them a reason to do so because we need it as an institution more than ever? Now we've done we've 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 cracked this this challenge of getting new donors. And once we've somebody has become a donor, now we want to love them and say. 
thank you so much for being a donor. Here's all the benefits of being a donor. Here's the impact you're having on the student athlete experience or to the student experience. And here's the impact you're having by purchasing tickets. And so it's two different conversations going there. And that is a, that is a huge opportunity for us right now because those are those new donors, we can't just expect that they're going to continue to donate every year. Um, but you better believe that the School of Education, if, they, if that's the school that came through, the School of Business, if they're now donating to, to athletics, that's a, that's a good flag. That's a good s- signal that maybe they have capacity to be making an extra donation to central campus. And so there's a much bigger opportunity there if we can just identify who those hand raisers are. We know not everybody's going to do it, but they're, and they're less likely to do it if they, did, if they don't have that affinity or connection to the institution. But if they have that connection and now they're giving, even at a low level, that's a great indication for future engagement, future stickiness in terms of their engagement with, uh, with the athletic department, engagement with campus, and you know, how we keep them, uh, we'll, we call them fans for life or donors for life. Yeah, it's, it's a great point, and it highlights one of the real challenges in, in this world, the, the reality that, to, in some ways, the, the true value of, let's say, winning a national championship or going to the Final Four pays out 30 years later when they finally remember their when they more finally remember their campus experience and they're more likely to write a write a check along those lines you know one of the other things that's happening in the world is the baby boomers are starting to wind down move to florida maybe write big checks to institutions um the millennials are probably the core audience at this point generation z is starting to be, you know, they're all, all the college graduates are Generation Z now. Do you notice any shifts in fan psychology as we go from the, I mean, in some ways it's a real challenge. You guys got to talk to baby boomers all the way down to, you know, 22 year old members of Generation Z. Do you notice any fundamental shifts? Consumption obviously is, is changed uh, for how, how they consume our content in person and at home uh, or wherever they are on their on their on their screens and so are we operating in those places so are the how are the sports properties utilizing you know tiktok for example to engage with tiktok users how are they um, leveraging their their app fans the most avid fans will download the app, but most fans won't. It's just an extra app or they'll opt out of notifications. So what, what good is that? As so much has been invested in building really fancy websites and really fancy apps, but I couldn't tell you the last time me as a consumer, as a sports fan, went to a Teams app to, to do anything really, unless I was required to for to access my tickets, for example. And so... I think the way that they consume the content is different. Generally, they're interested in shorter snippets of content. It's the it's the highlight reel, if you will. And even within a population or within a brand, behavior is different. So within our research and strategy department, we get asked quite often to uh, to do focus groups with student groups to figure out 
what are their motivations to actually attend a sporting event? And we're working with a Power Five school, and they sell out their student section for football, but they can't get any students to show up for men's basketball games, and they just can't figure it out. The team performance is actually pretty similar. So if we isolate that out, because they're they're pretty good in football and they're pretty good in basketball, but the experience is completely different and the demand is completely different. And so what we found is that, it, but through these listening workshops, is that one there's a lot more basketball games than there are football games. It's not the cool place to be, and we're not doing ourselves any favors uh, as as the planners for these events because. We found in this one institution, there were 11 different game times and days of the week when the events happen. Whereas for football, it's pretty straightforward. Pretty much every Saturday, you know there's going to be a game. It can be an afternoon game or an evening game. And it's predictable. Basketball game could be a Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. could be a Thursday night at 9 o'clock because of TV. And so getting that message out there is difficult. We then ask them, how do you, re- how, how do you find out about what, when the game is? and they don't check their student email account. They don't check their, they maybe check their personal email account once in a while, but we can't access that. But they're on social media. And then we want to find out which social media apps they're using. And then the question is, from a marketing perspective, are we spending time and energy in those places where the students are already living, wherever that is, whatever apps those are? Because if we're not, we should be. So at least they get the message out there and we're serving them where they want to be served. And are we providing them some a reason to to attend? You know, and that is, um, you know, there was a there was a there's a coach recently who said every every student over the age of 21 gets their first uh, free beer, first beer, <laughs> and you know, because they allow alcohol sales in the stadium, and that got a lot of energy and buzz, even for the non 21 age crowd. They thought, wow, this coach is pretty cool. He's connected. And so what's the equivalent for the under 21 crowd? Is it free food from the favorite local restaurant? It's those little promotions that can engage with people. And if we give them a fun experience while they're in school, they have a better chance of engaging with them when they get out. Bill, this has been a great conversation. I feel like I've made you work hard today. Is there anything that I'm missing? Is there anything that's sort of on your radar that that marketers and sports marketers should be looking for next? Yeah, there's there's a lot of research around um, how spectatorship may be declining for various sport codes and properties. Um, but I like to look at the, the positive and and look where the opportunities are. I look at participant-based sports like pickleball. I find it fascinating. I think, how is it that this sport seemingly came out of nowhere? And it is, doesn't matter. You could be, you know, retired. You could be a... Bill, is there a professional pickleball league? I assume there is. From There is now. Okay. And I, I have yet to participate myself, but I'm dying to participate. And everyone I talk to loves the game. And they're getting... bit. Ma- major sponsors now and i think it's just fascinating it's very accessible and my question you know is one will will there come a time when people will buy tickets on a on a high level to go watch pickleball perhaps tbd but from a participant and engagement they're doing something really right something simple 
And I find that fascinating. So what are the participant sports that are actually growing in popularity? And, and that I would include esports in that greater umbrella. And you know, where, where are they trending up? And what are they doing to, to engage their, their populations? And how can our traditional sport properties look to replicate that? So maybe we do host a pickball tournament at halftime at the football game or the basketball game because it's just something different, right? And take something that's working in one arena, bring it to our arena, and amplify it. And I think the more organic um, and, and it can be and authentic it is, more it's going to resonate with the future generations that are participating in those things. And if we can give them just one extra reason um, to, to be engaged, the better. I look at rugby sevens as another example. It just became an Olympic sport this past Summer Olympics. And it's seven on seven rugby. The games are only 15, 20 minutes. It's fast. It's easy to watch. It's exciting. And there's growing interest in America. And I think about what can we be doing around that, not to necessarily create hardcore rugby fans that didn't grow up playing it, but around the event, concerts and different kind of, you know, it's a heavy beer drinking um, fan base. So like, what can we, can we have a beer festival and a concert? And oh, by the way, there's a rugby game going on and it's only 15, 20 minutes. So it meets that short attention span that you know, many of us have. And so those are interesting things as we continue to look at what's the next, what's the future of sport marketing? What's the, which sport and entertainment properties are picking up speed and what can our legacy brands and properties do? to replicate and borrow from those emerging brands so we can you know, continue to support and the sustainability of sport properties. I love it. You know, leveraging identity, building community, maybe a little of spectacle. You know, I, as you're discussing this stuff, I got this image of Jake Paul playing pickleball in this new professional pickleball league where you and I are starting. Bill, Bill Fagan, I can't thank you enough. Uh, always a pleasure. Um, thank you very much. Grateful. Thanks, Mike.